Church, let's pray for that. Let's pray for awakening in our nation. We need it more than anything. What this world needs more than anything, more than any conversation, more than any philosophy, they need what we have in our hands, which is the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It alone has the power to change and transform not only people, but, but communities and the world itself. So let's pray. Father God in heaven, we come before you this morning and we pray for a great awakening. A great awakening in our community, in our world, in our nation that's turned upside down. Lord, there's, there's only one solution. All others will ultimately fail. All will fail except one. And that is that people surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and get radically saved and born again. So Lord, let us Christians be the light that we're called to be in our dark generation. Let us share your truth. Let us proclaim your word that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Father, we, again, we pray for a great awakening in our country and let it begin with us here in the church. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Normally we pass out Bibles at this point because at Calvary Chapel we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But in light of the current situation, uh, if you have a Bible, great. If not, pull it out on your app. And uh, this morning we'll be in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, for those who haven't been with us for a couple weeks or maybe you're visiting with us, we are journeying, journeying, let me get this word right. We are taking a journey through the book, uh, through Hebrews chapter 11. Two weeks ago, we looked at what faith is. We established that foundation. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then also in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Anybody that comes to God must believe that he is. And for many of us, we think faith is just a mental assent. It's something we believe in our heart, which it is. We do believe it with all our heart. We do believe it with all our mind. But faith is so much more than that. And that's the purpose of Hebrews chapter 11. So what we're doing now at Calvary Chapel is we are slowing down and we're going through each individual person in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. Last week, who did we look at? We looked at Abel. And what do we see in Abel's life? Abel, there you go, that's right, Abel. <laughs> Our drummer's name is Abel, by the way. He's looking at me like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> but uh, we looked at Abel and, and Abel... He, he, uh, he gave God his very best. And so now, this morning, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, and we're looking at this guy called Enoch. He's not talked a lot about in the church. He's not talked a lot about in, in, in Christianity. But the Bible says a lot about him. And we're going to pull that out of the Word of God this morning because he's placed there in Hebrews 11. That means that God has put him there for us to learn from. So we got one verse in Hebrews chapter 11. And it's Hebrews 11.5, and, and it goes like this. It says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. And Father, for, thank you for Enoch, this hero of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, that we get to study this morning, that we get to learn from. So, Father, thank you for your word. And, Father, as we dive into these three passages on Enoch, I pray, Lord, that you uh, teach us more about faith. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen. Amen. The title of my message this morning is Enoch, a man who lived to please God. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever you want to learn something, Whenever you want to really dig in, you always find someone who knows what they're talking about. You always find someone who, who is a veteran, you know, a, a rookie on a sports team. Who does he look to? He looks to the veterans. A new person in the military, who do they look to? They look to the senior, senior NCOs, the senior officers. Well, not, Enoch, you ready for this? I, I've been serving the Lord for about, I guess, about 22, 23 years. I lost count. But this guy, he served God for 300 years. Do you think he knows something? Do you, do you, do you think he's got some time under the belt? I, I, think he, I think he could teach us a lot.
But the thing that we see at the, at the very end of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, is it ends with this. He was pleasing to God. So that's, that's my cornerstone this morning. That's the, that's the corner I'm playing off of to uh, present to you each biblical truth concerning Enoch. So we're talking about living to please God. What does that look like? How do you describe it? Again, whether you realize it or not, you desire to please other people. You live in your life today, most likely you are living to please others. It could, you, you, we live to please our spouse. As husbands and wife, we take care of them physically, emotionally. They take care of us physically, emotionally. How about our boss at work? When you go to work, what do you do? You give your very best. Why? One, you want a paycheck. And second, you want to please the boss. You, you, want, you, you want to be um, pleasing to him. Teachers, you know, when we go to school, what do we want to do? We want to learn, but at the same time, we want to do what the teacher says. So that's, we're, we're always wanting to um, please other people, but the question we have to ask ourselves in our Christian walk is, are, are we pleasing to God? That's the big question. I mean, you can please your job, you can please your spouse, you can please other people, but the biggest question of who do you please in this life comes down to this one, is are you pleasing to the Lord? And my heart's desire this morning is that that's your heart cry, and that you've come to Calvary Chapel this morning to get into the Word and to learn from this great man called Enoch. Enoch. So who is Enoch? Enoch, there's actually two Enochs in the Old Testament. One is in Genesis 4, one is in Genesis 5. And Genesis, uh, it's not the son of Cain in Genesis 4, but this is the son of um, Seth, the seventh generation from Adam in Genesis chapter 5. This guy Enoch, he was the uh, great-grandfather of guess who? Noah. Noah. So this is, this is who Noah this is Noah's uh, great-grandfather that we'll be learning about. And we're going to see in our study this morning that even Noah was impacted by Enoch. The name Enoch, it means dedicated. It means dedicated. So we see in faith that there's this dedication. When you say you believe in God, when you say you believe in Jesus, that means you have a dedicated commitment to the Lord, that you're dedicated, that you're in it for the long haul as Enoch was. The Bible says he lived 365 years, and it specifically says that it is from his 65th year to the 365th year that he served the Lord devoutly. So what I want to give to you this morning is three passages, three characteristics. Y'all ready? All right, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5, and we're going to look at the three passages on this hero of the faith, uh, Enoch. First book of the Bible, the fifth chapter in, verse 21, verse 21 through 24, is our, is our first picture, is our first information that we're given on Enoch. So let's, let's see what the, the word says in verse 21. It says, Enoch lived 65 years, and he became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The first characteristic that I present to you this morning concerning this uh, person Enoch is this. It's simply this. Pleasing God, he walked with God. And we can't, we, can't, we can't just leave that statement behind without flushing it out and understanding how important it is to just simply walk with the Lord. Many, many times we refer to our Christian walk as I'm walking with the Lord, I'm walking with Jesus. But what does that look like? When you say that you walk with God, you're implying that you're walking in step with him. Uh, I did many, many years in the military. I, I, I marched through a lot of formations, and in every formation that you're marched in, whether, whatever branch of service you're in, you had to stay in step with the commander. The commander would say, forward, march, left, 
left, left, right, left. And as he was calling off cadence, you had to stay in step. Why? Because you were following the commander. So there's this, there's this following him as the commander. There's being in step with him. He's, he's, he's calling the, uh, he's making the commands, and we're saying, yes, Lord, I will follow your command. What you do, what you say is what I will do. Walking with God means um, following him, hand in hand. You know, you think about, um, I think about when I first courted my wife and asked her on a date. And that, I loved nothing more than to go places where we could go for a walk. And guess what I would do? I would slip in there and hold her hand. And I would walk with her. And, and me and her got to know each other. But I, I enjoyed holding hands with my wife, as I'm sure many of you have. But there's this element that when we walk with God that we're holding hands with the Lord. That his hand is reaching down from heaven. And our, our hand is reaching up. And we're holding on to the great and mighty hand of the Lord God Almighty. That's what it means to walk with God. That's what it means to take hold. Uh, walking with God, this phrase can mean uh, partnering with. To have, uh, to have intimate fellowship with. It means to get to know the person. When you walk with someone, you get to know more than just their name. You get to know their heart. You get to know who they are. And in this case, when we're walking with God, as we walk with him and we hold his hand and we follow him and we're in step, we get to know him by his word. As we study his word, as we read his word, you're saying, Lord, I can trust you. You're holding my hand. You're carrying me through this, Lord. And the evidence is what's written in your word. He is faithful to his word that we can hold his hand. It's moving beyond belief to a relentless passion in following Christ Jesus. It's to place him first. It's to be able to come to a point in your life, walking with God, is to be able to come to a point in your life where you say, man, there is nothing more important than you, Lord Jesus. That's what walking with God is. Okay? It's more than just this mental ascent. You know, I have this belief, I have this belief in God, but it's this, it's this overwhelming passion in your heart that says, Lord, I want to please you. I want to live for you. And there's nothing more important than my relationship with you. It means you understand how great he is, and you will follow him no matter what the cost is. My friend, the world can mock you, and guess what? You don't care. That your flesh can eat you up with temptation, but you keep fighting the fight. You, 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 you get up, you repent, you, you brush the dust off, and you keep fighting the good fight. Someone can come into your life and try to pull you away from Christ, and guess what? They don't stand a chance. That's what walking with God is. It's a sign. These are signs that grace has truly taken root in your life. This is, this is going beyond belief. This is going beyond belief to experience, to, to experience in him in our everyday life. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, I, I'm, I'm, I'm cueing off this phrase because he says it in verse 22 it says, then Enoch walked with God. And then he repeats the phrase in verse 24. He says it again. Enoch walked with God. When, when the Bible says something once, we pay attention. When the Bible says something twice, we pay even more attention. So what does walking with God look like? It means you trust him, you love him, you obey him, and your allegiance in this world is to the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you, do you, do you see the walking with God? Okay. Okay, so we got that one. We, we, we walk with God. Matter of fact, I want to show you something. His walk was so real that it impacted his family for generations. Look at chapter 5, verse 22. It says, chapter 5, verse 22 of Genesis says, Then, and it has this phrase, Enoch walked with God. Now look down at verse 24, as we talked, said just a few minutes ago. It, said, it repeats the phrase again. In Genesis 5, 24, it says, Enoch walked with God. Now, look over to your, to your right in, in, your, in your scriptures. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 in your Bible. It says, these are the records of the generations of Noah. 
Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. And in ASB, some of our translations put it in different order. But uh, in chapter 6, verse 9, it uses, the, it uses the exact same phrase to describe Noah. It says, Noah walked with God. My friend, Enoch's faith outlasted his life. This is three generations later that Noah is following in the footsteps of his great-grandfather. Mom and dads, grandma and grandpas, do not underestimate your influence on your children and on your great-grandchildren. As you raise your kids in the ammunition of the Lord, as you raise them up to know Christ, they will remember the life that you lived, they will remember the words that you say, and they will remember the spiritual heritage that you've given to them. No matter where they're at in life. You know, sometimes we raise our children. Sometimes uh, they stay on the straight and narrow path. Sometimes they wander to the left, or sometimes they wander to the right. But ultimately, God will be faithful to remind them of these truths. And so don't underestimate the power of your witness and the power of your words to your children and to your great-grandchildren. I am here today serving the Lord because of a grandma and a grandpa in Augusta, Georgia, on their knees praying for this lost sinner that was a hellion, rebellion, that loved his sin, that lived in darkness. And I will never forget, um, they had prayed for me, they had witnessed to me, and I was on a deployment. And I called them from Italy, and I said, hey, Grandma, can you send me some tapes from your church? She lived, she lived down in Augusta before she passed away. And let me tell you, she lived in Augusta, Georgia. I was in Naples, Italy. She had them jokers FedExed. They, she had them jokers FedExed. And I spent the rest of the, that deployment on a ship in the Mediterranean, the Persian Gulf, listening to that preacher preach. And then it wasn't six months later, I was at Bethel Temple, Assembly of God Church in Hampton, Virginia, giving my life to Christ because of the witness and the faithfulness of my grandma and grandpa. Your words, remember this, ministry, ministry in whole, but specifically ministry to our children and to our grandchildren is never, ever in vain. Don't never think it's for nothing. God will remind them, and God will bring it to their hearts and minds. So that's the first one. Now, so we, he walked with God. That's the first characteristic of pleasing God. Let's look at the second one. Now turn in the New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament, to the book of Jude. To the book of Jude. And we're going to see our second principle uh, when it comes to Enoch. The ser- second characteristic of living to please God. Jude is a very small book written to um, warn the world of false teachers and to warn the world the judgment that is to come. And it specifically mentions Enoch. So we want to we pull that out. So hopefully you're there. Jude verses 14 and 15 talk about Enoch. The New Testament author says this, it was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, in the context of Jude, Jude is a New Testament book that's warning you and warning warning us against the dangers of false teachers, and against the dangers of false teachers, and secondly, uh, hand-in-hand with warning the world of false teachers, but it also talks about that there is a coming judgment. There is a coming judgment. There is coming a day where every single knee will bow before God and they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, Christians, we believe, will stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. It will not be a judgment of salvation because your salvation was judged at the cross when you were forgiven. It will be a judgment of what you did with your life. But then there's this thing called the great white throne of judgment. That's the judgment you don't want to be at. That's the one that the book of Revelation describes that the ungodly will be at before they are cast into the lake of fire. Now, the, the thing in Jude, verses 14 through 15, that I want to pull out of here, the second characteristic of 
of living to please God is this. We warn the ungodly world of coming judgment. Of coming judgment. Enoch prophetically spoke against the ungodly world of his day. And then the author of Jude is attributing uh, Enoch's prophecy to the false teachers of the New Testament. But Enoch did not blend in with the ungodly world. He did, not, he, not, he did not blend in and try to become one with them. He warned them that Christ will come again and that either Christ will either be two options. There's only, there's only it's either option A or option B. Is he'll either be your savior or he'll be your judge. He'll either be your Lord and Savior that died on the cross for you, uh, for your sins to give you salvation, or he'll be the judge who judges you with complete righteousness. You see, my friend, God speaks. God speaks to this ungodly world in four ways. Count them, four ways God speaks to those who don't know him. The first way he speaks is creation. Psalms chapter 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. The after they the poor for speech, night and night they display knowledge. Every single human being, whether they're on the continent of Africa or the continent of North America, they see this beautiful blue sky during the day. And they see the starry universe at night. And God speaks to them through creation. If there's a creation, guess what? There is a creator. And he reveals himself. The Bible, we call that general revelation. Second way that God speaks to the ungodly world is he's given every single human being, every man and woman of all people, he's given them a conscience. He's given them a conscience, according to Romans chapter 2. And on that conscience, it's the, uh, Romans chapter 2 says he's written his law on, your, on their heart. What does that mean, he's written his law on their heart? I believe... Uh, he's written his moral law, the Ten Commandments. You don't have to tell someone that it's wrong to lie. They inherently know that it's wrong to mislead someone. Why? Because that moral law is written on their hearts. You don't have to tell someone that it's, that, uh, it's wrong to kill. Why? Because the sixth, sixth of the Ten Commandments says you shall not kill. And God has written that moral law, that moral DNA on your heart. If a person is honest in the quietness of their soul with all clarity of thought and they think about these things, they, they will understand, just like you and I do, that they're guilty. Who has not broken God's moral law? And the answer is no one. We have all lied, which is a violation of the ninth commandment. We have all, um, seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery. Jesus, but, but Jesus said, he who looks with lustful thoughts commits adultery in his heart. So God even sees our thought life and the sexual and moral thoughts as the same as the act of lust. The, uh, the fifth commandment, honor your mother and father. We've all broken that one. I've, I, Pastor David, I've looked at all ten of the ten commandments. And guess what? You're looking at an individual who's guilty of all ten Okay? I'm the wretch, the song refers to. I'm the wretched, deplorable, lost, I was the wretched, deplorable, lost individual that the song re refers to. You say, Pastor David, you killed someone? Really? Are, are, are y'all are are looking at a murderer? Have I ever killed someone? I haven't physically killed, one, killed someone, but Jesus says, he who hates his brother without cause is guilty of murder. So God has written his moral law on all people's hearts, and he reveals himself to that way. I've got to get this back to Jude chapter 14. Okay, so the third way that God speaks to the ungodly world is his word. This glorious, beautiful gospel that's written in his word that comes, that's preached across pulpits, that's shared by Christians, Bible verses on billboards. He speaks to them through his word. And then... He speaks to, through us Christians, through our witness, to our loved ones, to our relatives. And, but, but when man rejects 
these graces that I just presented to you, creation, conscious, the gospel, the Christian witness, when a, when a person says no, no, and no, there's only one thing left. There's only one thing left. You, you, pigeon, you pigeonhole yourself into a corner. The individual has, and that's judgment, a righteous judgment. A judgment meaning it will, <clears throat> and it's a righteous judgment meaning it will not be unfair that people will get what they deserve. It will be the consequences for their action. And may I add to you that in, in Jude 14 and 15, it says, it uses the phrase in there, all the ungodly, all the ungodly. In other words, no one is exempt. Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. This is not a popular message, okay? This is not going to get a lot of YouTube likes. And this is not going to be something that people want to share across Facebook and, wow, look at this awesome message. But it's the truth. It's the truth that one day Christ will return. And he will either be, he will either, for every individual living on this planet, he will either be their savior or, or, or be their judge. Um, and, and let me add this too. Because we start talking about judgment, people start getting preconceived notions in their mind. Warning people of, the co- of a coming judgment is, you ready for this? The most loving and caring thing you could do. Let me repeat that. Warning them that, that God's going to hold us accountable and they will stand before the judgment seat of Christ is the most loving, caring thing that you could say. Imagine for a moment, it's December 26th, 2004. Anybody remember that day? December 26th, 2004, what happened? It was a very tragic day. Imagine you're in Thailand. You're looking out across the beaches, and you're relaxing. You're enjoying the sun. You got your early morning breakfast, you're drinking your orange juice, and you're just soaking it all in, and there's all these people on the beach. And then all of a sudden, the water starts receding. It starts going away. There's actually video footage of what I'm describing. And all of a sudden, what? The, the ocean's starting to disappear. And all these people go running out onto the beach. And people are picking up seashells and picking up all kind of stuff, and they're just combing the beach because all the water is disappearing. There's actually a video out there of a gentleman who's on a first floor balcony and he's got his binoculars and way off in the distance he sees this big old mountain of white water coming. What does he do? From his balcony he starts hollering across the beach, get out, run, run. And he even says it in the video. This is before it was published. Tsunami, tsunami. Some of the people listened, some of the people didn't. The people that listened began running, fleeing into the city, running away from the tsunami. And there's actually video footage of people who ignored it. People who ignored it and stayed out there. And what happened? They got wiped away by the tsunami. See, my friend, you and I are like that tourist on the balcony. And we see all the people in this world on the beach living life. And living life as normal, you know, day after day, night after night, doing their thing. But you and I know from God's word that there's coming a day where he's going to judge the world. And if we're faithful Christians, we are going to let the world know in a loving, grace-filled way that there's coming a day that, you, that God is going to judge the world. He's going to judge the world for all their sin. And we can point them to understand the judgment of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, and at the same time, point them to the love of God and the grace of God that rescues them from the wrath of God, from the judgment of God. We need to say there is a tsunami coming, there is a judgment coming, but guess what, my friend? There's a way to escape. There's a way to be forgiven. There's a way to stand righteous and and holy before a just and righteous God, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's be like that tourist and say, hey guys, get out the way. Repent. Put your trust in Christ. Receive him as your Lord and Savior, and avoid that tsunami of judgment that's coming. So that's the second characteristic I present to you. The first one is uh, Enoch walked with God. We see in the word of God. Second thing we see is he warned others 
of a coming judgment. So second principle. And guys, remember now, this is in the context of, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 11, and this is, what, what's this called? The Hall of Faith. The Hall of Fame. The Hall of Faith. These are the greats. These are the greats that the New Testament says, hey, believer, look at these guys and learn from them. Let's look at the third, third and final characteristic. And it comes from our opening verse. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. Hebrews 11, 5. This will be our, this will be our final one this morning. Um, principle that we learn from Enoch. I hope you leave here today saying, man, I, I've learned something today. I've learned something from Enoch. Because that name just doesn't grab your attention as someone who's going to teach you a lot. But it's true, he is. He, he does. He, he, he is. His name means dedicated. So Hebrews 11.5, we're going to learn our final, our final uh, lesson from Enoch. Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. My final principle I present to you this morning from the life of Enoch that we can learn from as Christians is this. Enoch lived in light of eternity. Enoch lived in light of eternity, and he had an eternal perspective. This is the very first rapture, by the way, in the Bible. This is where someone is physically removed from the earth, not by means of death. He was taken up. He's one of two in the Old Testament. Who was the other guy? Elijah. Elijah was taken up. But before Elijah was taken up, Enoch was taken up. And all it says is he was, it says, uh, he was not found because God took him up. That phrase took him up uh, is, is, a, is a word that the, the language, it's, it's, it's a violent language. It's a, it's, a, it's a fast removal. It's not something gradual. It's not something slowly moving away like an ascension. It's, he, was, he was removed and removed very quickly. I believe that Enoch had his eyes fixed on eternity. He understood, Enoch understood the temporal nature of life. He understood that, man, one day, you're, one day you can be here, and the next day you could be gone. You know, I don't know about you, I, I'm, I, I am hoping and believing and trusting, and I want to be 90 years old with my great-great-grandchildren on my lap, sitting on the front porch, drinking a cup of coffee, and I hope to live that long. But the bottom line is, I'm not promised that. So I have to live every day in light of eternity. Listen to what James said. James 4.14 says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Um, We went to Daniel's high school graduation at Gray Collegiate Academy a couple weeks ago downtown at the baseball stadium. And uh, afterwards, we said, hey, let's go get some pancakes and sausage and I went I was going down Taylor Street and the last time I went down Taylor Street was when my mom was in a nursing home at Taylor Street and I'm just I'm just gonna share this but I was going down Taylor Street and in the nursing home they would not let the um, they would not let them smoke which is good <laughs> smoke is bad for you but uh my mom was a smoker so every time I went to go see the nursing home she would beg me and plead with me and beat me over the head till I took her out so she could smoke a cigarette. And so I would wheel her down to this little concrete um, protrusion on the sidewalk. And I was, going down, I was going down Taylor Street. We'd left Daniel's graduation, going to the pancake house. And I came up to this red light. And I looked over there and I saw that tree and I saw that little concrete bench. And I was like, it kind of struck me. I was like, wow. I, I, I guarantee you I could, I, could, I could have pulled over right there and went over there and found some of her cigarette butts. Okay? But just to look at that place and to think, I was sitting right there, and my mom was in a wheelchair, and I was talking to her, telling her how bad smoking is and, and everything. But today she's gone. She's gone. She passed away. It's like the brevity of life. You know, it's, it's, it's something, it's hard for us to, wrap our hearts and our minds around, especially if you've lost a loved one. It's very difficult. It doesn't get easy in any situation. It's very heart-wrenching and it hurts. But 
we, we have to come to grips with it because it's part of life. It's part of the curse. It's part of the fall. All men will die. Why? Because of sin. But we need to be reminded of life. Anyway, I was just going down the road, and, and I was like, she's there. Now she's gone. I, I was thinking about my dad, you know, fishing on Lake Murray. We, and we used to tear him up at the towers. We would striper fish at the towers. We would just pull him up left and right. And I was just there with him a couple years ago, tied up to the towers, fishing. He even took some pictures of a, me and him and a striper bass about to give us a kiss. And, and then now he's gone. But we need to understand that's part of life. That's part of brevity of life. And that understanding of the brevity of life should push us to live with an eternal perspective. King David said in Psalms chapter 90, verse 12, he says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Okay? We need to be reminded that life is not forever. In whatever amount of time that God has given us here on this earth, we need to pray and say, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom that I can live my life in light of eternity. You know, what does it mean to live in light of eternity? Several things. There's, I, could, I could go about ten different ways when you use this phrase, living in light of eternity. But number one is you live holy. You live a holy, dedicated life where you commit yourself, Lord, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to follow your law. I'm going to follow your word. And I want to obey you with all my heart. And my friend, you can't do with that. You cannot you can desire to do it, but you can't do it in your own power. You need the Holy Spirit's help. The Holy Spirit's help to help you obey him. It's the, the Lord living in us that even gives us the desire to obey him and to trust him. To, to live in light of eternity means that you understand this world is, is not our home. It's not our home. Our home is in heaven. Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place. And then he goes on to say, I am the way, the truth, the life. But heaven is our home. See, you and I came, when, when God created this world, we were created to have eternal life. We were created to be in a place where there is no death. I hate death, by the way. It stinks. I did three funerals two, two weeks ago. I'm doing another funeral this week, and I, and I, never, I never liked them. But why, why does death happen? Because your and my great, 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 a bunch of great grandfathers named Adam disobeyed God. Our grandfather and grandmother, Adam and Eve, disobeyed the Lord, and it brought the curse into the world. And death, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, death came as a result of that sin. So what does it mean to live in life eternity? Another one, look to his return. We look to, we look to his return. We see in the Bible where it says that Christ will return. That gives us hope and that makes us look to the heavens to say, okay, what part of this eastern sky is he going to split? Where, when's he coming again? No man knows the day. No man knows the hour. Don't even try to predict it, because if you predict it, you're wrong, because Jesus said no man knows the day or hour. So if you, if, if you hear someone predict it, that's an instant, nope, that's not it, because no man knows the day or the hour. So we don't know. It could be before I finish this message. It, it could be years from now. It could be, we don't know, but we need to live in light of eternity. You know, one day, my friend, one day, you and I will get to experience the exact same thing that Enoch. Wait a minute, but, but Enoch was taken up to heaven. Do you mean one day I'm going to be taken up to heaven? Yes. One day, this Old Testament saint that the New Testament in the book of Hebrews brings forward for New Testament Christians to learn about, he was, he was raptured up to heaven. Well, one day, you are going to get raptured up to heaven. And it may be before you die. It may be before you die. It could be afterwards. You know, as a kid growing up, I, I used to always dream of what it would be like to go to the moon. What would, it, what would it be like to leave this atmosphere in a space shuttle and go land on the moon or go explore outer space? 
I always just thought that was the coolest thing. I grew up watching the Space Shuttle Challengers and, and all their missions and their tragedies, and I always thought to myself, wow, what would it be like? What would it be like? But my friend, one day, you and I will absolutely, positively experience an exit from planet Earth, just like Enoch did. I want to, I want to show it to you in your Bible. So this is, this is where we'll close this morning. Turn in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So you can make your notes. You can say, okay, this is where the pastor was going. And when he says, he says that we're going we're gonna to leave this world like Enoch. Where, where is he getting that from? I want you to see it in your Bible. All right, Pastor David, show me how I'm going to leave this world like Enoch did. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, <clears throat> verse, start at verse 13. It says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest that have no hope. NASB says we do not want you to be uninformed. I like the King James Version better. The King, if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, it says, I do not want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant. In other words, uh, this, is, this is something you need to understand. It's basic truth to the Christian faith. That this is going to happen. Don't be ignorant. Don't be uninformed about those who are asleep. That word asleep in the New Testament is a euphemism for those who have passed away. When they lay them in the grave, they're laying down. They look like they're asleep and, and, and they're buried. Verse 14, he says, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Again, man, I could, I could go all kinds of places with this. You know, in this life, the minute you breathe your last, guess what? You open your eyes in heaven. I do not believe in soul sleep. I do not believe in this long period of time between consciousness here on earth and consciousness in heaven. I believe Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he says here in verse 14, he says, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So those souls, those spirits in heaven, will come back for the reuniting with a brand new body. Brand new body. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Here it is, guys, verse 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It says there in verse 16, the opening of the verse, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Jesus himself will be the one that splits the eastern sky. Jesus himself, the very one that died on the cross, that took the holes in, in his hand, took the nails in his hands and his feet, and was crucified to a tree. Jesus, the very one who rose from the grave. Jesus, the very one who as the disciples were looking up, he was taken up. Jesus, the very one who poured out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, will be the one who splits that eastern sky for the Lord himself. And it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. In other words, there will be a resurrection all across the land. This is hard for us to get our minds wrapped around. Why? Because we've never seen it. We've never experienced it. We've never seen this in real life. Therefore, it can be hard to understand, hard to uh, get our minds wrapped around. But it is the truth that will take place in the future. Verse 17, he says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. It says, "Those of Then we who are alive and remain. Who is that? That's you and me. That's the believers. That's the Christians. That's those who are still alive will be caught up. You know, um, 
there's this new critical thinking out there, this criticism of Scripture. That rapture is not in the Bible. The, 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 the word rapture is not in the Bible. You know what I say to that? I agree with him. The word rapture is not in the Bible. But the word Bible is not in the Bible. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. But the principle of the rapture is in the Bible. Look at verse 17. It says, then we who are alive and remain shall be. And here it is. Your English Bible uses the phrase caught up. But in the Latin Vulgate of the translation, uh, the word that we get that English word caught up comes from the word raptura, which that is where we get the word rapture. And it says, we shall meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. My friend, one day, you are going to be living life and then you're going to be gone. You're going to be gone. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. He will come. That's why in the midst of everything that's going on in our culture, more than anything, you and I need to be ambassadors for Christ. You know, we need to avoid all the rabbit trails and all the confusion and all the chaos, and point them to the one truth, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. When a person gets saved and surrenders their life to Christ, it melts away every sin. It, 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 it dissolves every conflict. It gives us a soft heart that seeks reconciliation with all people. Why? Because we're living to please just like Enoch did. This is a 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18 is the biblical text, is the doctrine for the, for the rapture of the church. And that's a huge doctrine. But he says there in verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. So this morning I comfort you with these words. I comfort you, I encourage you to live with an eternal perspective. I encourage you to live like Enoch and let your focus be living a life that pleases God like Enoch did. That's my word of encouragement to you, to fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. You know, when you got Jesus, you got everything. You know, when you, when you keep him at the center of your life, in your heart, in your mind, in your trust, in, in your obedience towards him, everything else pales in comparison. So this morning, I encourage you, I challenge you, I, I, I admonish you, live a life pleasing to God. And it starts with three steps that are up on the screen. Number one, from Genesis chapter 5, we learn, walk with God. Walk with God and hold firmly to his hand in these trying and difficult times. Or maybe things turn around in a couple weeks and things get great. Praise the Lord for that, but don't let go of his hand. Live for him. Walk with him. Secondly, our message to the world, we have a message of grace we have a message of peace. We have a message of forgiveness. We have a message of love. But at the same time, we have a message of judgment. Of judgment for those who, who reject this great and awesome salvation. And finally, live with an eternal perspective. Because one day, we're going to see each other in the air. Boom! Out of here. It's going to be like a sonic boom. We're going to be out of here. You know, a, a lot of people... Um, in churches, they want, they want to argue over, you know, when's it going to happen? Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? I, I agree with Paul Benware in his book, Understanding the Times. Regardless of your position, whether it's pre, mid, or post, we agree and we believe he's coming. Maranatha. I'm a pre-trib guy. I'm going to live it and preach it till I die. And that's my position. But I'm not going to break fellowship. I'm not going to break fellowship. As a matter of fact, I'm not even going to argue with you. You can say, well, I'm a mid-trip. I'll be like, well, God bless you, mid-trip. One day, one day, we'll be looking at each other in heaven, and we'll be like, see, I told you. 
you, you can say that to me. I'm going to say, I told you. And I'm going to say, no, I told you. you know, it'll go back and forth. But regardless, he's coming again. So be encouraged. And let's learn from this great Saint Enoch. Next week, next week, we'll be looking at Noah. You know, Noah lived a perfect life. He never did anything wrong. That's not true. He made mistakes. He made mistakes. He blew it big time. We, we see in Noah a man who blew it bad, really bad. But then he was a preacher of righteousness. We're going to see a man who found grace in the sight of God. And so I want to encourage you to join us next Sunday. Wednesday night, Wednesday night right here we have, um, as Andy was talking about, we have an adult Bible study on Wednesday nights. The, the men are studying through Daniel. The ladies are studying through Daniel. The student ministries here in the sanctuary. This past Wednesday night, I think we had 14 students here, praise the Lord. And so we rejoice that our student ministry is growing. And then on Wednesday night also, in addition to student ministry, men's ministry, women's ministry, we have children's ministry. So I just want to encourage you guys to come out. And, man, let's learn, man. Let's take this season of life that we're in and let's grow in the grace of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of Enoch. What a name. Uh, thank you for this testimony of who he is and what, you, what we as Christians can learn from him. Father, help us to go home today and to meditate on these things, think about these things. Help us to live with an eternal perspective. Give us a renewed passion to walk with you, God. And help us to understand that our, our message to the world is balanced. That there, there's, there's grace and truth, but there's also judgment. And we need to live and, and proclaim that truth to the world. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen.